You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're finishing up our series in the book of Galatians. And uh, this brings me a, a, a lot of joy to finish a series, but also a lot of sadness. Because I know this has been so wonderful to walk through this, you know, God's word and this letter to the, the church in Galatia. And I'm sad to bring the series to a close, but because I, I think it's been so fruitful for us. Well, why don't we read this and then we'll kind of we'll finish up uh, this together. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 11 through 18. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Why has this been such a fruitful series? I think it's been so wonderful. It's been so life-giving and fruitful because there's something hardwired in all of us to be free, to experience freedom. We are created for freedom. And this is what this whole letter has been about. It's been freedom in Christ. And there's something that longs for the grace of God in us. There's something that wants that. C.S. Lewis, the author of many great Christian writings, including the Chronicles of Narnia, um, he says this, he says, a person's physical hunger does not prove that we will ever get any bread, but it does prove that we might die of starvation, and our hunger proves that we are kept alive by feeding ourselves with food, and that by eating we would be a people that, that inhabit bodies that are, that are nurtured and fed by food. So this hunger that we have, a craving, proves that there's something out there that satisfies us. We have this for God. We have this for freedom, for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness. All of us are hardwired for it. But we don't always, it doesn't, just the craving doesn't mean that we'll get it. So when we speak of the gospel as the good news of, of our freedom from performance-based salvation, it awakens something inside of us to say, that sounds great. I want that. But it's also kind of difficult because we're afraid of what, that, what it might mean and if it's even possible to get it. It's easy to understand, but it's difficult to grasp. Like, what does that mean to live by the gospel? What does it mean to live by faith and to embrace the gospel? What does it mean to know that we don't live by a performance-based salvation but we live by a grace-based, mercy-ridden salvation. 
we really need to bring this letter to a close, and, and Paul does it in the absolute best way right here. It's his last appeal to kind of drive home this gospel-focused salvation. His last invitation for his readers to, to keep them trusting in the gospel, to not wander from it, and, and that's my hope for, for all of us this morning, is that we would, we would let the gospel drive deep into our hearts, and we would, be, we would, from one degree to the next, we would just grow in what this looks like. So he decides to write this part of the letter with his own hand. So Paul says, you see what I'm doing here? He says, you see which, with what large letters I am writing? Uh, many of Paul's letters, and this was common for the time, was to be by dictation. So he would speak, someone else would be writing for him. Some scribe would be writing the letters uh, for him. Paul grabs the pen from his scribe and says, this part I'm doing myself. It's kind of like a shift between like talk to text, you know, and to like a really important text you need to send. You know, I need to pull over and not use talk to text and I need to stop and I need to get focused and I need to write this part. This is, this is Paul's way of maybe like using emoticons or something like that. He's like, I need to get my emotions across to you. This is so important. It's like all caps, underline, italicized, Times New Roman, like 16 font. Paul's saying, you got to listen to this. Please pay attention to this. Um, I've told that in, in a good speech, you, you, tell, you tell the audience what you're going to say, you say it, and then you tell them what you've said. Well, Paul has done the first two, and now he's at the final one. So he's, he's told them what he's going to say. He has fleshed out the gospel, and now he's at the end, and he's saying, okay, now let's gather around it one last time. Uh, so let's begin what, with what we must be drawn to see in the gospel in verse 12, and that is that real Christianity is a matter of inward change, not merely external behavior, not merely external character. So Paul is saying here, here's what I've told you, but I need to tell you again. This is what it means to know, to follow, and to trust in Jesus. It is not about the way that you look and what you do. It is about an inward change that God accomplishes in our lives. Here he, here he says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. There are some who want to focus on what you do and what you look like and how you live your life as the, what matters the most to God. You know, some pastors and, and uh, teachers and other influences have come into the church in Galatia, and they've come into this church that Paul has planted, and he has loved, and he's poured his life out to these Christians, these young, new Christians, and these other influences have come in, and they have distorted the gospel. They have made it not something about their, their trust in Christ and his righteousness for, for them, but they've made it about something about a, a kind of righteous living, a following the law of God that makes them accepted and acceptable and lovable and pleasing to God. And Paul is saying, if you believe that obeying the Jewish law will make you right before God, then you don't understand the good news that I've been talking about this whole time. You don't understand what's been accomplished for you on the cross. And this was a, a motivating factor for obeying the Jewish law to not be a, not to like cause offense to not hurt people's feelings so Paul is saying they're wanting to teach you something different so that they're not persecuted 
Now, here's the question. Why would preaching Christ be a threat to your life? Because the cross of Christ is offensive. The cross of Christ is insulting to our view of self-salvation. Think about this. You're a good person. You've worked really hard to follow the rules. You, you've changed your life. You manage your life. You, you've learned how to do good things for God. And you do a good job. You make bad decisions for sure, but you're learning how to make good decisions. And you have come a long way. You don't do the bad things that, that you know, bad people do, right? We all have in our mind, those are bad people. And you look at yourself and you say, I don't do those things. I am a right kind of person. I'm a right person. I'm a good person. Gives you a sense of control over your destiny. You are the one in control of your life. But not only that, it gives you something to be boastful in and proud of. When you see other people fail, you look at your own life and say, well, I don't fail that way. And it gives you a sense of pride. And being a good person can give us a way of saying, look at the good that I've done. God should like me for the hard work that I've done. I'm the sort of person that God should be glad to have on his team. 40 years on this earth, this is what I've learned by observing others, because that's my spiritual gift, is pointing out people's weaknesses. <laughs> and also understanding my own weaknesses. Here's what I've learned. We generally spend a great deal of time putting a lot of energy into avoiding failure, into avoiding being vulnerable, into avoiding feeling exposed, into avoiding feel, uh, expressing weakness to others. It, we spend a lot of time spending our life to never have to apologize for anything. And we instead spend a lot of time doing and saying things that will hopefully convince people that we are lovable, that we are acceptable, and that we are worthy of their friendship. That's all I've learned in 40 years. That's what I've learned. But in the most basic way, the cross of Christ is offensive, and it's humiliating. It's humbling because it says this, you're not strong enough. You were not faithful. You don't have what it takes. And the gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness is so giant. There is nothing that you can do to bridge that gap. And then we kind of think, then all that I've been doing in my life seems like a waste of time. I have been trying to avoid feeling weak and vulnerable. And now the cross of Christ says, you are <laughs> There's weakness in you. There's something offensive about that. In its most basic way, the cross of Christ is saying, it doesn't matter how good you are. God still needed to send his son for you. He still needed to die because there was nothing that you could do. And that is offensive and it's harmful. And there was some motivation for people to say, no, there is something you can do. This will make you feel special. This will make you feel proud. This will give you something to boast in. And there's something within us that craves that. Because if we can be good, then we don't have to admit that we're weak. We don't have to admit that we're failures. 
we don't have to admit that we make mistakes. The cross says it's not about behavior modification. It's not about following the rules. It's not about being better tomorrow than you are today. It is this inside-out change that God does in us. We change because of God's love. We don't change in order to earn God's love. We change because he has loved us. And Paul reminds us the gospel is not about what you do, but what about Christ has done for you. He says, you see which, what large letters I'm writing this? And then he goes on into to verse 13, says that being good does not make us right with God. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. So here's what he's saying. You could live under the law of grace or you can live under the law of God. You can't do both. You can either choose the, the, to follow the rules as a means of your salvation, or you can follow uh, the grace of God. You can't do both. Because if you follow the law of God, you have to do it perfectly. And so he's saying there are people who follow the rules that don't even follow the rules. Because they say we are saved by obeying God, but they don't obey God perfectly. And so Paul is kind of seeing the holes in their reasoning here. And this is what he wants to drive home in his last attempt to, to write to them as well. He says, just reason with me for a second. If you think that it is being good that makes you right with God, then you have to be totally good. It's not about your good being a little better than your bad. It means about never, ever, ever doing anything bad, ever. Not just again, but in your past, you have to be pure, morally pure. And so Paul says, so you can't do that, so... We live by the cross. We live, about, we live by his grace. I don't know when the, the cross became a, a romantic uh, decoration, right? That it's like on necklaces. We put it in homes and churches, and it's a decorative piece. Um, people get tattoos and crosses on their body, and it's, it's like a beautiful thing, but it's, it's, it's an object of, of death and destruction. Uh, we hang them on the walls of our homes, and it's descriptive. It, it's informative. It tells a story. The cross is meant to, to tell a story, and it's not a clean and pleasant story. It is, it's like putting like a guillotine on the end of your necklace or something. It's bloody. It's a reason why, um, there's a reason why we don't have on our wall the Ten Commandments plastered on our wall. There's a reason why we have the cross, because if we had the Ten Commandments, we'd be saying it is, it is by these rules, that's our hope for everything. But by looking at the cross, we are saying it is, it is, this is the means by which we have everything with God. It is the cross of Christ. So what story does that tell us? Paul is making a critique here. He's telling this story that if you want to teach any measure of your merit that earns your acceptance with God, then you have to do it all. A religion-based on right behavior as a way of salvation, it makes us feel important, but it can never save us. If we put the, the law of God plastered on our wall at the church, then I'd be telling you, this is how we find salvation. And not a single one of us can look at that list and say, I've done that. Maybe a, you know, a couple out of, out of 10, maybe, maybe some of us do, do further out of you know, two or three, but then we look deeper in God's word and we say, okay, I haven't murdered anybody, but Jesus says if we've hate someone in our heart, we've, come, we've murdered them in our heart. 
I've never committed adultery. And he says, well, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he says, is anyone good? Is anyone, can anyone follow God's rules? Okay, so there's another way. It's the cross of Christ. Only Jesus' work on the cross can save. And therefore, Paul continues to go in his reasoning here in verse 14. See, we just keep going down the verses here. In 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, so, so because I can't, Paul is saying, because I can't and you can't find this forgiveness because of our obedience, then I am going to brag about what Jesus has done for me. And that's what I'm going to base my entire life on. He says, I want you to do the same. I want you, 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 the whole boasting, your whole hope, all the hope that you have, the whole reason for your living, everything that you're excited about, not because of what you have accomplished, but what Jesus has done for you. If you understand the gospel, you will boast exclusively and only in the cross. If there is ever any any reason and cause to pat yourself on the back for being accepted by God, then you don't understand the heart of the gospel. If you look at yourself and say, I am the kind and type of Christian that Jesus loves to save, then we don't get the heart of the gospel. If we pat ourselves on the back, we don't understand. The gospel is this one-way love that makes us right with God. And it's only out of this acceptance that we're able to respond in obedience. Knowing that he's paid our debt, he's borne our shame, he has taken our sin on the cross, he was a perfect substitute for us, and because he died on the cross, though he never sinned, he died a sinner's death, and he rose from the grave, showing us that his sacrifice to God was an acceptable and fitting and perfect sacrifice for our sins, past, present, and future. That's the only thing. If there was one person righteous enough to save themselves, then Jesus would have never needed to come. But because there wasn't, and there still isn't, he had to come. The gospel never asks us to find our worth and dignity and value in anything that we have done, but always in what Jesus has done for us. Paul has been teaching the gospel like this all throughout the letter, six chapters. I'm just going to go real, real quick and list these off, one from every chapter. In chapter one, he says, he has set me apart before I was born. He's called me by his grace. Before I can even do an obedient work to God, he loved me. In chapter two, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am living by faith, not by sight, because he loved me, he gave himself for me. Chapter three, if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The reward that we have from God is by grace. It's not by uh, earning. It's not like a paycheck that we get after working hard. It is a gift that we receive like something at Christmas time. Chapter four, God sent forth his son to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Chapter five, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in chapter six, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. What is, what is the gospel? What is the good news? That God receives sinners freely by his grace. 
and this means we take credit for none of it. We don't get to boast in anything but Jesus. The cross of Christ resets everyone's status and makes the basis of anyone's salvation the cross of Christ. Have you done good things? That's awesome. Have you done bad things? That's sad. But the cross of Christ resets. They say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you heard that? What does that mean? That everyone who comes to Christ comes on the same basis with the same need. Hopeless in themselves, needing forgiveness. Your record, your character, we all have them, right? We all have a record that we're ashamed of, some more than others. We've all been beat up and hurt and wounded by the world and sometimes by ourselves, by others. But the cross resets that and all are freely welcome. We boast in the cross. What Christ has done becomes something that we get excited about rather than something we're afraid of. I mentioned earlier that the cross is offensive. It is, it is, like, it is this object of pain, but it is also an object of great encouragement. Because the death that happened on the cross was reserved for us because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We look at the cross and we see the punishment for sin is death. But it's encouragement because we see that Jesus took our place. And that means that when we put our trust in Christ, when we believe in this good news and this message that God has told us, that we are sinful, that God is holy, that we are sinful, that Jesus saves, that we look upon Christ in faith and trust in him. We repent of our sins and we we receive him as our savior. God looks at us as if we paid the penalty for our sin ourselves on that cross. And our debt has been paid and our shame has been taken away. And we are accepted, we are adopted into his family. Our punishment has been paid for. It's the reason that we are called Holy Cross. We're not a Catholic church. Like half of you come in, is this Catholic church? No, <laughs> We thought at the beginning, you know, you know, sometimes you name your kids a name and you're like, I wish I would have not named them that, you know? Well, we felt that way too. But no, no, we, we, sat, we sat around and, no, that's never happened, right? You think, what is the most important thing? What is the only reason for our boasting? The cross. What is the cross? It's, it's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's set apart. It's precious. It's everything. It's, it's holy. Yeah, it's holy cross. That's us. That's what's important to us. That's the, only, that's the only name, that's the only thing worthy of casting our, our, our hope on is the cross of Christ. Our, our character doesn't pick up where Jesus fails. It's, it, we don't go halfway and then Jesus carries us the rest. Jesus completes everything. At every angle, every turn, every step, every need, it's all grace, all the way, from start to finish, everything. It's all to his credit and not ours. And only when we can take our eyes off of ourselves, and only when we can take it off of our self-centeredness and this self-absorption that we have on trying to be right and trying to avoid weakness and trying to avoid suffering and avoiding pain and avoiding failure, can we actually see what God's intended like agenda is for us. 
It's to make us new. It's to make us a new creation. This is what Paul finishes with in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what matters? So he's saying it doesn't matter if you do all the good things right, and it doesn't matter if you have done all the good things wrong. What matters is God is making you new, and he's changing you. Why did he die? Why did Jesus die? To kill death and sin and to make us new, to give us new life. The enemy comes to rob and to kill and to destroy, but the good shepherd comes to give us life and to give it abundantly. Death is not the end here. Death death is not the end result. We're crucified in order to be born again. We are to be reborn in Christ. His death makes a way for our life. The cross, like like death itself, is is painful and grievous and offensive, but it's also victorious because it is the doorway to new life. It's our hope. I remember driving back one one day several years ago, if you, you know, the Hoover Dam, there was one way to go through it, and now they've got that big bridge. Now there's a second way. They've got that huge bridge that spans across the huge gap there at the Hoover Dam. It's a, it's a marvelous feat. I said dam like three times, sorry. And, uh, <laughs> so I saw some giggles. And, uh, <clears throat> and so this huge thing, and I, we were there. We were driving back when that was unfinished. And uh, we're, we're driving on the road, and then we're stopped by some construction workers and police officers were there. And we're like, what's going on? Like, why are they stopping everything? And we're at the front of the, of the line. And all of a sudden we see like half of the mountain just like crumble before us. So it's detonated in the distance. And it's a marvelous sight to see just like a mountain crumble to the ground. And we're like, that is amazing. We're gonna be here forever. <laughs> And so there was two things that were happening. There was this marvelous sight to see and then this incredible inconvenience. And they were there, we were there for like an hour, like waiting for them to clear the road of some rubble that had come into the road. But they had detonated like a whole side of a mountain. And it was a strange thing, a marvelous thing, a beautiful feat of technology and, and, and engineering. And yet frustration because we were being delayed, we were being inconvenienced. We were being bothered. No one likes to wait in traffic. But we were intrigued because we saw like a modern marvel just like happening before us. The work of God is like this. The work that God is doing in us will produce inconvenience and marvel. It will, it will if God wants to make a way for his work in you, he will have to bring destruction. He will have to detonate in you the things that shouldn't be there. He will have to turn a lot that you're hoping in into rubble. And it will be painful. And it will inconvenience you. And so much of our life is actually what we're doing when we're trying to avoid that. When we're trying to avoid pain and avoid, avoid discomfort and an, uh, avoid being exposed in our failures and weaknesses. Do you realize what you're doing? You are unknowingly avoiding the very work that God wants to do in you, to make you new, to make you more like him. 
And here's what happens when Paul says, this is what happens when we become dead to the world and the world becomes dead to us. And I'll get to that in a moment of what that means. He says here in verse 16, peace and mercy will come. He says in verse 17, the marks of Jesus will happen. And in verse, eight, in verse uh, 18, the continued grace of God. Peace and mercy will come about because of the destruction in your life that God is doing, dismantling your sin. See, Paul has talked about the flesh and our internal desires that struggle within us, that wants to follow our own impulses and make life about us. And then there's that impulse of the, the Holy Spirit that's wanting to change us more like God. But when we allow God to destroy those things in our life and to make us more like Jesus, the fruit of that will be peace and mercy. We talked about this. We spent four weeks on the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, your turn. Can you do it? You can do it. This, this is what happens. It, it produces in us this life that demonstrates God and gives us peace and mercy. It will grow and bear fruit, but also it will create in us the marks of Jesus. Paul is saying this. He says, I bear within me the marks of Christ quite literally and figuratively. So literally, Paul is like whipped. He has the marks of Christ on his back. He has been beaten. He has been bruised because of Jesus, but also he's talking in another sense, the suffering of Christ. The, the life of just pain, of, of putting to death sin in our life and following Jesus is not one of comfort. It is one of pain and destruction, but of triumph and new creation. And also continued grace of God. We will never be alone. He is always with us. He's always changing us. He has promised to never forsake us. He has given us the promised Holy Spirit, the presence of God that is our guarantee that we belong to him and he will never, ever leave us. He's always with us. You are never alone. The struggle that you're going through, you're never alone. The inconvenience and the pain, he is always with you. And, and it will change us. It, I'll say this, it must change us. We will experience deep soul rest, but we will also experience deep soul pain. This is the part of the Christian life that none of us want to really experience and try to avoid it. So listen here. If we want to grow in, in our relationship with God, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, then I'm going to say some hard words here. There will be and must be a demolition of your flesh. There must be a, a destruction and a dismantling of the things in us that God doesn't want there. And that never comes peacefully because we hold on to it tight and we wrestle it. And we don't want to surrender those things because those are the things that bring us, we feel, bring us hope. But this is one of the most loving and it's one of the most painful things that God does. Yet it's the best thing. Like God dismantling sin in our life is one of the most Loving things he can do. The thing, and and it's, it's something I have learned that is one of the best things that God can do. It's the way a parent loves a child. It is the way God loves us. God cannot take up more space in your life without taking something out that shouldn't be there. He can't do that. 
The same way that we can't clean out our garage without ever taking anything out. I got to go clean my garage. What'd you throw away? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to get clean then. When we increasingly understand and apply the gospel to different areas of our life, the impact of the world and our circumstances will begin to lighten. It will begin to lighten. We will begin to experience God's peace, his mercy. Um, Paul says, the world is dead to me. Let's talk about that. So he says, the world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world. What, is, what does that mean? It's quite fascinating. He says, it ultimately doesn't matter people's perception of me. It ultimately does not matter what people think of me. It's as if they don't exist. This is interesting. He says, my faith is not crushed by people's assessment of me. My faith is not crushed by uh, the pain of this world. It's not crushed by sorrow. It's not crushed by loss. It is not crushed uh, by failure. I am not ruined by pride uh, or my success or failure. The joy I had in my sin, I now hate. Um, and it's replaced with a joy for the love of God. So Paul is saying there's two things that no longer motivate me in my life. When he says I'm, the world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world, he's talking about motivation. And he says there's two things that once motivated me in how to live that don't motivate me anymore. One was what people think of me. So he says because I know what God thinks of me and because I know that it's not because of any good that I've done, people can think the worst of me and, I know, and I'm okay. Because, one, like if they say, well, you're a bad person, Paul can say, you're right. I am, but Jesus loves me. And also knows that the worst that people say about him, Paul knows that it's still not the, the worst that, it, that is actually true. <laughs> there, we're actually far worse than what people say. If someone has hurt you with their words, they could say worse, and it would be true. And God knows that. <laughs> so, so Paul says, I know God, like you know a little bit about my sin. You know about my life. People know about your life and they've maybe called you out on it. God knows everything you've ever done wrong. He knows your heart right now and he still looks upon you with great affection. And Paul can then say, I'm no longer motivated by the world's assessment of how I'm doing because God loves me, accepts me. I'm secure in his love and I matter to him. That's the first thing that motivates Paul. And the second thing, so it's the assessment of the, of, of the world, and the second thing is his sin. So he says, the second thing that motivated me was trying to be good so that I didn't fail, so that I didn't, you know, so I wasn't showing my weakness. He says, I was the best Christian that there was. Well, not Christian, but I was the best religious person that there was. He was actually like groomed to be like the next big thing in the Jewish world. A Pharisee, he memorized the law of God. He even killed Christians. He was responsible for uh, the murder of Christians and the persecution of the church. And it was his goal in life to destroy the church of Jesus. And he used to be motivated by being zealous for good works. And he's now saying, I'm not motivated by that anymore because Jesus is the one who's only righteous. I, my righteousness doesn't get me anything. 
I did everything right that I thought was right, and it still wasn't right enough. And Jesus did everything right that I couldn't do, and he died for me. So Paul's bedrock for emotional and spiritual health was not his self-esteem and who he was or what people thought of him, but God and what God did for him. So that's what it means to be dead to the world and the world dead to you. Paul's never saying, like, forget the world. Like, I hate people. You know, this isn't an invitation for introverts, right? Okay, so this is, sorry, I'm an introvert. (laughs) I'm like, I'm really, I don't know, I'm really getting on introverts today. Here's what he's saying. Because I understand the gospel of Christ, the core of my being, I realize how powerless everything else is to condemn me. They can't condemn me on one hand, and I realize how powerless I am to save myself. And I don't need either of those anymore. The condemnation of the world doesn't matter, and me trying to save myself doesn't matter because God has done all that in Jesus Christ. So think about it. Reflect with me on this. No one can condemn you. If you are in Christ, no one can bring an offense against you that matters. Nothing. And even even if it's true, that's the great thing. Even if you did commit this great sin, it will be fruitless in attempting to take you from the love of God. God already knows and you have his favor. He loves you. Let's say you sin, this horrible sin. He knows and he doesn't condemn you. People will condemn you, they'll betray you, they'll speak evil against you, they'll reject you. But they are not the creators or sustainers of your soul. God is. And his opinion of you matters. And he says, you belong to me. And no one can take that away. And also, no one can save you. Not even yourself. But that's okay because you don't need anyone to save you. Because Jesus has saved you. The only one who is capable of rescuing you and forgiving you and saving you has saved you. Paul says, I will not put people in the role of my life where they don't belong. They can't condemn me and they can't save me. That's what Jesus is for. And so Paul gets to this and he says, that's why I'm going to boast in the cross and nothing else. Paul, you're so awesome though. I want to be just like you. Don't be like me. Be like me only in the way that I look to Jesus for everything I need. So if you have that, the world's dead to you and you're dead to the world, guess what you get to do now? You are free to enjoy all the blessings of God. You can enjoy your life because you're not afraid of failure. You're not afraid of what the world can do to you. You can enjoy the grace of God and his his blessings. You can enjoy the hope that is yours in the future. You don't have to be afraid of the present. You don't have to be afraid of crumbling mountains and crumbling economies and crumbling societies. You don't have to be afraid of pestilence or oppression or persecution. You don't have to be afraid of, 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 of relational turmoil. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to work to find your way to God. He's done it all. In light of what God has done in Jesus Christ, who you were or who you would be without Christ no longer matters. Don't even think about it. So live like Christ has set you free from a performance-based 
acceptance. So live like that. So Paul's saying, this is my last chance to talk to you. So now go and live like that. All of us, to some degree, don't understand the gospel fully like this. We need to get the gospel deeper into our heart. And this is Paul's dramatic exit. This is, this is his mic drop moment. Okay, this is Paul's mic drop moment after an epic performance. And he's like, Paul, out. And this is what he says. I'm not sure what, what's going on here 100%, but here, look, look at what he says. This is his mic drop moment. In verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. (laughs) I love that. Okay, this is awesome. Would you stop bothering me now? I've told you everything you need to know. Leave me alone. He is an introvert. Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) What's going on? Is Paul just having like a moment here where he's like all of a sudden become like selfish and self-centered? He's, no, he's, he's not. Here's what's, here's what I think he's doing. He's, He's saying, now that you have everything you need, you need to be a self-feeder. So I've shared with you everything that you need to live a free life in Christ. So start doing it. Start feeding yourself. You don't need my instruction anymore. You're asking me questions that you know the answer to. And to some degree, this is all of us, those who have the gospel and understand Jesus and what he has done for us. You have everything you need for every moment of the day. Every question that you have, you are well-equipped. Stop acting like you don't know. And so Paul said, would you stop bothering me with all of these questions? Now, there are some, and I imagine even, I even hope there are some in this room this morning that you need to be fed. Being, needing to be fed is not a... Uh, it's not a bad thing. Some of you need to like, I need to know the gospel. I need to understand it. Can you spell it out for me again? And that's what we do every week. We go to God's word and we, we, we teach this. You need to be shown what it looks like to look on the grace of God. And you need help lifting that spoon to your mouth to feast on Christ, to be nurtured by it. But then there are some of you who are grown adults, you know, sitting at the dinner table and saying, now how do I do this again? And this is, this is where we need to be corrected and say, but you know, you know how to do this. Stop acting hopeless. You have the strength of Christ. Where are you in that? Is, is God asking you to be a self-feeder? Do you have the, the grace of God? Do you understand the gospel? And, and there's areas of your life where you're like, you know what, I know that the spirit of God is speaking to my conscience and I know I'm, I'm convicted by his word and I keep thinking I don't know the answer, but I know the answer. I know what he's calling me to. I know what obedience looks like. But others are you of like, I'm so confused. I don't understand. Like, I'm skeptical of it. I'm curious of it. And so we're at different places, and that is okay. But Paul doesn't want us to stay there. In what areas of your life do you need to apply the truth of the gospel? What areas of your life are you afraid? And what areas of your life are you, you feel shame or guilt? And how does the cross of Christ free you from that? Every struggle with sin can be traced back to a failure to apply the gospel to that area of life. Every struggle with sin. And the the greatest comfort of all in verse 18 as he finishes, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. Amen. He just finishes. Amen. It's how we end our prayers. It's a way of saying, so let's go do that. That's what he says. So amen is like, so be it. Like let's, by the grace of God, let's just do that. Let's live like that, church. Let's live like that. You know, Christians, brothers and sisters, let's live like that. Let's not be motivated by fear. Let's not be motivated by discomfort. 
Let's not be motivated by a, a fear of failure or what if people find out that I struggle? Well, if they're saying, if, if they're bothered by that, then they're pretending that they don't. Apply the cross of Christ to your life. How's it going to work? What confidence do we have? It's the grace of God that sustains us, that motivates us, that changes us, that comforts us, equips us, that convicts us. Without the grace of God at each point in our lives, we would be without hope. We have everything we need. What a great, what great news for us.